Welcome to Sweeping the Country. One more time, my co-host, Mr. Jimmy Carter. He is here today with an icon, the godfather of soul, Jimmy. The godfather of soul, the hardest working man in show business, soul brother number one, mm-hmm. Mr. Dynamite, Mr. Please Please Me, one of the first 10 inductees into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, wow. Mr. James Joseph Brown. Wow. Wow. I mean, what year now, was What this? a weird yeah. situation to okay. okay. I thought he was cool in the 60s. Yeah. Uh, and remember, I am from the highly segregated city of Montgomery, Alabama. Yes, yes, yes. We had a black, all-black university called Alabama State University. Mm-hmm. And I would go over there on certain nights in the 60s in my early teens uh, and go to stand on top of cars and watch the pay-per-views of Muhammad Ali. Oh, my gosh. And then I would be, when I got to be a teenager, he James Brown would play generally every Thanksgiving in Montgomery at the Garrett Coliseum. Mm-hmm. It was generally an all-black attended event. He was the godfather of soul. That's it was his predominant audience. But I liked black music. Okay. I loved all kinds of R and B and soul from Sam and Dave to um Otis Redding to everything in between. I loved that music. Yeah, as did and, I. Yeah. And I just loved it. So I would sneak over and if usually a friend of mine would go with me and we would go as the concert had already started to the Garrett Coliseum. And the only other white faces you'd see in that show were the occasional police officers. Wow. In many cases, the black police officers in the town were working uh, that event. Yeah, yeah. And so I would get in, and I don't ever remember paying. I remember it was sold out. Yeah. So at this point, we would go. The doors would be open, you know, third of the halfway through the concert or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. So we just sneaked in. And, man, to see him up there. Get up off that thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, and this, he was so, with that big band, with the horn section, with the groove. That I mean, all these people from Prince yeah. to Lenny Kravitz to all those people, they learned whatever they learned in the beginning was a root of James Brown. I just, it I remember, I just remember the energy level, and I never went to a show. You know, oh, yeah. we lost him in 06, I think it was 06. Um, but yeah. I never went to any of the shows, but I've gone to shows where they're high energy, but not that level high no, energy. No, not that high energy. And it was amazing. Yeah. The James Brown and the Famous Flames. Mm. And, oh, my God, it was such a great band. Uh, and he didn't tolerate anything other than complete excellence. He yeah. was a taskmaster. Now, some of you might have seen the movie that Mick Jagger helped produce. Yeah. Uh, there was a story of James Brown. Some of that story was true. Yeah. There are definitely warts on the subject of James Brown on him. Sure. But when I had my first contact with him as an adult, as someone who had, you know, some business to be taken care of with him, I met him uh, backstage at an event for a guy named John R. Okay. John R., John Richburg was a disc jockey at WLAC Radio. It was the radio station that was to soul music what WSM was to country music. Okay, They broke groups like Etta James and James Brown and B.B. King and a lot of these people to a national audience because it was at 1510 a.m. It was a clear channel, and everybody in the Northeast got that signal at night. 
So all these, uh, everybody, white and black, that wanted to, was scanning the dials of AM radio at night, which is what we did, teenagers. Mm-hmm. On the upper end of the dial, you had you had 1510 WLAC. And then at the other end of the dial for country, you had 650 WSM. And in the middle, there was WWL at 87 and WLS at 89. Mm-hmm. So you had a lot of things in between. Yeah. But you could hear those stations out in the backwoods. You know, the people would listen to the Opry and WSM. Yes. And people would listen to John R.'s show. And and then there was two or three others that escaped me right this minute. Very famous men, too, yeah. uh, that did these shows. A number of them thought a lot of these guys were black. But they were indeed white. Fascinating. At a white-owned radio station, WLAC. But they gave a lot of breaks to people, and they would come to the station in Nashville. They both stations were in Nashville, mm-hmm. and they would come in and make personal appearances. So John R. was having a fundraiser because he had had cancer and run up a bunch of bills. So BB King came, James Brown came, My uh, all these people came to do a benefit at the Opry house. How great is that? So I've been an introduced James Brown was in a dressing room. I don't know who I think I thought I was, but, uh, I wanted to introduce myself to him Yeah, yeah, and, uh, and did and told him about all the concerts I'd seen in Montgomery and all that. So I was one of the producers of the show that night. So number one thing he wanted to do was he wanted to meet, he said he loved Roy Acuff. He grew up listening to Roy Fascinating. Acuff. That blows and I my said, mind. Well, I can arrange that. Would you like to meet him? He said, Oh, he was yes. Yeah. And so I said, Let's go. Come on. So he followed me and his wife Adrian followed me down the hall of the Opry. We run immediately into Charlie Daniels. Oh my he God. knows Charlie Daniels because he had <laughs> Charlie Daniels had invited James for years yeah. to come to the volunteer jam. So Jimmy, he said, Jimmy, what are you doing with James? I said, I'm taking him to meet his uh, musical hero, Roy Acuff. And he said, let me get my guitar. So he got his guitar and off we head to Roy Acuff's Acuff's (laughs) dressing room. And and Acuff had no idea who James Brown was at all. But James Brown knew who Roy Acuff was. And so... Uh, Charlie started playing, and they did from the Great Atlantic Ocean to the Wide Pacific Shore. Oh my! Did the gosh. Wabash Cannonball. Oh my! God. And then they did something else and something else. Now I had no recording device with yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. I did have my camera, and yeah. I've taken some pictures. I have some still pictures of that moment that James Brown and uh, whoever else was in there with Charlie Daniels oh and gosh. Ray Cuff and his boys singing. Wabash Cannonball. It was hey, a memory I'll never forget. Hey, before we move on, people can go see those pictures. Where do they go? AskJimmyCarter.com? I'm gonna, I, I think I've posted them okay. on AskJimmyCarter.com, and if I hadn't, I will do them by the time this comes out. Yeah, on they're my great. I, I've seen them. I've everywhere. seen them. I mean, I've seen the photo of the, of the three of you standing there. and uh, it's, really, it's really cool. So anyway, later on, we at some other time, I do an interview and when I tell him about again all the stuff like that, and he always referred to me as Jimmy. Jimmy. That's how he would. He said, "Here comes, <laughs> here comes Jimmy." Oh, and one thing too, he had these two guys helping him get his boots off. Yeah. After some rehearsal, I said, "What in the world?" He said, "They're taking my boots off." And I said, "You need a boot jack." And he said, "What's a boot jack?" <laughs> and I said, "A boot jack." Is it's this little piece of wood? You put your heel in it, right? And you stand on it, and you lift it off, and your boots magically come off. He said, "Ooh, I never heard of them boot jack." I said, "You know what? I'm going home and get you my boot jack." 
I drove all the way to Brentwood, 30 minutes, and all the way back to the Opry House oh, and brought it. him my boot jack. <laughs> well, he tried it, and he thought I had just given him a car because he normally <laughs> had to have two men take the boots off. Yeah, yeah. So he was really through. I got a really nice letter from his wife, Adrian, about that. Oh, now, Jimmy. James was a juvenile delinquent as a kid. Mm -hmm. He grew up to be, you know, I think he he had some issues with, with women, and he had multiple uh, ladies that he – uh, got pregnant and stuff like that over the years, but he was way past the juvenile delinquency thing. He was one of the most famous humans in the world. Indeed. I mean, because he played Africa and every other place. Okay. One of the first things James ever showed me, he showed, he got his billfold out and showed me his black Republican donator card. Wow. Wow. He was a stone cold Republican. Wow. This was like in the 1980s. He was all about being a Republican. Very proud of that. Now, yeah. After all this stuff, and I see him in New York uh, months later, and he's got this big fur coat on and a neck of the entourage. Oh, yeah, that was his Coming deal. out of the New York Hilton. Yep. I'm walking down Broadway. I see him, and I go, James, because nobody else is out there. It's cold. Right. And he went, Jimmy. <laughs> he was so thrilled to see me. And we then you know saw him, got a hug and all that stuff. And then I never saw him again. Wow. Now, the next thing I know is a couple of years later, he's involved with an arrest. Uh, in Augusta and all this stuff. The things he that. told me of reasons that led up to this. When we were doing our interview, not on camera, but just sitting there talking and being friends, yeah. he told me at one point he had all his teeth taken out mm. because he had no dental care as a kid. Wow. He was poorer than dirt. So the, no dental care, you're not going to have good adult right, teeth. Right, right. Because he had such rotten and out teeth, he had them all taken out. He had totally... Plates. That's why his mouth, if you see his teeth, are so perfect. They are Those perfect. Are they, and they're very white. Now, yeah. He wore terrible shoes that ate in on his feet. And he had bad, bad, ingrown toenails. Oh, man. He had his, several of those toenails were removed and surgically. I am told that is the worst pain that you could ever have. Yeah, I'm sure. Is having your toenails removed. Had to have your toenails removed. Mm. So he got on some type of Oxycontin or something, the equivalent yeah. after the toe, toe surgery. So he had such bad ongoing pain. Yeah, I'm sure. So that's how he got on dope. He was not on awesome. recreational dope. He was on pharmaceutical dope. Wow. And so much to get over that pain bet between the teeth and the toes that led him down the road that got him arrested, that got him in prison and, you know, really besmirched his what, name. What a mis... And he never was able to clean it up. What a misinterpretation. I mean, you think about his reputation, right? He passed in 06. Yeah. So he, you know, and that was, that was what, 18 years ago, 17 years ago? That yeah. People don't think about that. They just think, oh, he was on drugs, right? You think that. But that's a and fascinating... And I don't know how many people he told that to, really, that, yeah. that he... Yeah, yeah. I mean, because he had everybody... He was a king. Yeah. And he was treated like a king by his people that, that worked for sure. him. And with me, he was talking ultimately like a friend. Yeah. And I don't think he had that many friends that he could just talk to right. in a way that we talk on this interview. Yeah. You're going to hear him. He he spills it out there. And wow. he's very sincere. And it was a special. I caught him in a, a special time in his life. Mm -hmm. uh, James Brown. This is from, I could look up the exact date, but it was sometime in the mid to late 80s. Here he is, James Brown. Hit me. How you doing, James? I'm all right, Jimmy. 
<laughs> You're the hardest working man in show business still. Thank you very, very much. It sounds good coming from you. And I love the conversation we had a little earlier tonight, talking about the good things, uh, talking about show business and talking about the real sounds. And I liked all the things you said. Sam again. Mm. <laughs> the, mu the music really hasn't changed that much since you started, has it, for you? Well, I, my music hasn't changed. I refuse to let it change because uh, it's like a two-button blazer. They never change. Uh, people just get farther into it. Remember, we got to convert about another 300 million people in America, and then we're going out and convert about another billion throughout the world somewhere, because we're playing soul music, and soul is us, and I think the country music is getting more deep in the soul openly. Country's always been soul. There's gospel, and the soul is jazz. It just you do what you do, and you do it best, like we talked earlier, and if you become uh, identified by, with your style and stay with it, don't chicken out, then the people will realize it. Are you still trying to get a message across in your music? Yeah. And what like, is that message now in 1985? Same as it was then. Uh, at that time, I might have come a little abrupt and said, we're fighting for respect and fighting for opportunity, but opportunity and respect on a... Exp uh, give you the chance to express the love that you have for yourself. It's all about love anyway. Whatever you do is about love, and you sometimes get angry because you can't express love. Uh, but that's what it's about. When you started out in Georgia as a young boy, what did you want? I mean, did you want money, or do you just want to go out there and entertain? I mean, what were your original goals? I wanted to eat. E-A-T. And I wanted some nice clothes. And I wanted to further my education, which I didn't get a chance to do. And then later on, I found that I had gotten a lot of things I needed. So then I want to see other people get opportunity. I fought for so many people because I know that everybody that most of the people that I knew were doing bad because they inherited it, not because they did it themselves. They inherited uh, rough times. And with an education, with pride, self-pride, they, they could do a lot of things. I was lucky. God gave me the, the energy and gave me the blessings of wanting to do, of, of having a talent to sell. And uh, out of all the things, I could have played professional baseball. I had a chance. I had three professional fights, boxing. But singing was longevity. Then I was a junior delinquent, so singing was easier for me. I admit that I started in the church uh, singing gospel, and then I formed a band. But you know, I can, all, I can go back to any of the songs I sang. Excuse me. And um, I can sing almost every song I sing on the stage in church. I'm very religious. Not trying to impress nobody, because I, I talk to God first for myself. Then I ask the blessings for my family and other people. So I'm not trying to tell you I'm the most religious man in the world, but I'm religious from my heart what I do. Uh, with my talk I have with God, I just feel I prayed today before I got you and asked for the energy and that we're on the stage tonight. Well, let's talk about that a minute then. Some of the acts of today can't say they have a clean show. Do you really pass judgment on them or do you just think it's their thing? I don't approve of it. I don't approve of nothing dirty on the stage. I don't approve of nothing dirty, period, but I don't, definitely nothing dirty on the stage. Uh, if you want to destroy yourself, then you should destroy yourself by yourself. Don't come and spread it among other people. I've always said that. Uh, I can go back to some entertainers years back. Um, I was working at Flamingo, and 
good friend of mine. Uh, this is when comedian was using words, you know. And uh, I don't want to call his name because I don't want to down him. But he was one of the big ones. And he used profanity on my show. I want to use um, uh, one of the letters out of the Bible, you know. But he didn't use it right. He used damn, but he didn't use it the way I wanted to use it. Because the way he used it was another kind of way. And um, I went and told the owner, I said, you know, not the owner, but the, uh, the general manager, I say. First, I told him, I said, if you use profanity again, I'm going to say, can I get you fired? Because I'm not going to be on the show with it. So he did it again, and I told the general manager, if he stay and do that, then I'm going to leave. I said, I'm not trying to pull rank. I said, but this man intended not to, he showed me he's going to do that. So he dismissed him. And then I, over the years, I, I have denounced a lot of people, and every time I come down on the act, they get rid of him. I'm going to do a family show as long as I live. You know, to be such a right winger and be so straight, <laughs> so uh, it's, uh, I don't know, sometimes it's not in, but I tell you one thing, it's in with God, it's in with humanity. My wife tell me sometimes, she said, you talk about, you talk about humanity in the country all night long, it don't talk so long sometimes. But America's been good to you. Yes, very, very good. The people have been, America's been good, but the world has been good. See, I just can't lay and kneel down in America and say it's been the only thing. It's been good to me throughout the world. It's been good to me. Eastern Europe, Germany, France, England, Belgium, Africa, Australia, all of South America from Rio de Janeiro, Peru, Bogota, Venezuela, the Orient, Japan, Okinawa. I look forward to going to China, Russia. Well, you've had it all, James. What do you want now? I mean, what I want? I want to spread it. Still? Haven't you spread it already? About less than a, a point, uh, less than 10% of a tenth. A lot of people out there. And you know, like I say, right messages don't sink as fast as dirt. So we got to keep on convincing more people to go right. You know this whole music set today, unless you get the, the senior musicians, uh, this, this young set, they're going on the wrong way and don't even know they're going the wrong way. So we got to have some role models out there. I mean, had a lot of money tonight. The Yank Ballers, the, uh, the uh, Rupert Thomas, the Chandler Daniels. We saw the, the grandfather, the, uh, the, the king of, uh, of country tonight to me, uh, Mr. Roy Acuff. I felt good seeing him. I've never seen him do a dirty show. I don't think it makes sense. I saw Brother Chandler Daniels out there. I've never seen him do a dirty show. Don't make sense. But the young kids of the day, from the comedian, I don't know what the, com the comedian's going to do. I, they got to, I, don't, they, I guess they got to almost go and come back again. They're you like probably, Eddie Murphy? You're going to pull it on me? I like Eddie Murphy. He's a good, clean kid. I, don't, I didn't like some of the things he did. All right, Prince. I like the first part of his show. I don't like the last part. Is Prince copied James Brown? He copied some things, but he didn't copy the end of his show from me. That's the one thing I don't approve of. And I talked to his manager, which is a young kid who used to work for me, Alan Leeds, and I told him that... Uh, get him to turn around. But they say he's doing better than he used to do. Maybe he didn't know any better. And maybe he just need more, more, model, more role models. Are there any uh, James Brown-like singers, entertainers out there on the horizon that are young that you've seen that are coming up like you? Would you, if Prince cleaned up his act, would you be proud to say that he is a lot like a younger James Brown? I'm proud to say he got the guts to try today, but I'm not proud of what it has become.
I don't think sometimes it's all of him. Sometimes got to, somebody might tell him to be this way. And could he be doing what somebody's telling him to do? But one thing about it, the people that are telling you to do it, don't want you to do it for their kids, you know? I fully endorse one young fellow, even though he had a lot of problems on the last tour, but I endorse Michael. But one thing about Michael, he's clean, clean, clean. What do you think about Michael? You watched him come up. Why is he so successful? Number one, because he's good. He's a good kid. He's a good kid. Uh, Michael, sometimes it's better to be a little boy than to be an old, dirty man. Do you ever wish you could go back and be his age, knowing what you know now? Oh, no. Uh -uh. You wouldn't want to do it over again? I would have a beautiful and intelligent wife like I got now. I'm fine. I'm very happy. I was in France about a year and a half ago, and we did a million and 3,000 people, the biggest crowd to ever see a show in history. If I had been a kid, I couldn't have seen that show. It took a lot of history to see that. I had people from all parts of Africa, Cameroon, Dakar, uh, Senegal, uh, Nigeria, Niger. I had people from France, England, Germany. I had from uh, uh, Arabic countries, uh, Jerusalem, Israeli people. I had um, the German people and naturally the French people, some of the warmest people in the world, Orientals, Oriental people from China, Japan, Okinawa, Taiwan, and the Latin people from all over the Latin countries, you know, Bogota, Venezuela, Rio de Janeiro, all the places. And I felt very proud. And the only way you can do that had to be around a while. Mm -hmm. It's like uh, crowds say, if you're going to make mayonnaise, you got to make some eggs. The great James Brown, a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Songwriters Hall of Fame, Rhythm and Blues Music Hall of Fame, <laughs> Mr. Please Please Me. Oh, I say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. Uh, just so many. Papa's got a brand new mag. Yeah. Uh, cold Sweat. I got you. It's a man's world. It Please, please, please. James and the Fabulous Flames with Bobby Bird. And uh, he died on Christmas Day. Oof. And when I woke up that Christmas, maybe somebody even woke me up that morning. But I came in and used part of this interview and had some other footage. Mm -hmm. And I was on TV that morning at 5.30 or so because wow. I owned it to James Brown to give him a good send-off on Christmas Day of the year 2006. I'll never forget it. I went into work that morning on television, yeah. and uh, every half hour I did the report on James Brown dying. You know, I can I can hear the emotion in your voice. I'm sure everybody listening can hear that. Um, but when you listen to the interview, and I've I just I find you know he he opens up. You know, sometimes you get those interviews where people are raw, right? And they yeah. divulge who they really are. And and it felt like that he needed somebody to talk to <laughs> in that interview. And and you were that person. And I just I find that fascinating. And I understand the emotion. And God, Jimmy, I mean. That is, uh, that you know, is. There's the white black gold, thing man. going on too. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. for I mean, uh, I'm a child of the '50s actually, and raised in a town that was one of the uh, ground zero yeah. of the civil rights movement. Yeah, I know with, the involvement with your dad and all with that. With Rosa Parks yeah. taking the same bus that I used to ride on. That's crazy. Except I'd ride in the front and she rode in the back. That's crazy. Of uh, the Cloverdale bus, I, I you know I can see it right now. Yeah. And then someone who was such a figure in the black community 
mm-hmm. uh, James Brown for me as a white kid to go up to him and express how much I really, you know, really and was in awe of his music, yeah. which was not a popular thing to do if you were a white Not kid. at the time, no. And, yeah. um, and even later in the 80s, a lot of people just didn't understand that culture yeah. and where he came from. And I liked it because I understood the culture because sure. I was raised around it. And uh, I think he just, I think he was happy that some white kid, you know, young white man was knew intimately his music yeah, sure. and understood him. Sure. You know, and I think that was, I think that was special for him and something he certainly remembered. So absolutely. That was, uh, I don't know, one of my, it. one of my cool moments is being able to be buddies with James Brown. Jimmy. You look at that, you say it was a cool moment. I look at it from a generation detached, but I still knew who he was. I mean, I yeah. remember, you know, Saturday Night Live and Hot Tub and all that stuff. I mean, just yeah. really good. I mean, the guy did everything, and he appealed to everybody. And those kind of interviews, they don't exist really anymore. They don't exist. And they really never – they, were, yeah, they were, right. were not that many. I don't think they're that many, if any – regular interviews like this i can't think of i don't any. think there's that many that just sat down with him in a dressing yeah. room in a calm situation with someone who he's not worried about right right because he knows i'm not going to do anything right you know that's, that he's got to be on defense so he's totally relaxed yeah yeah and he yeah. felt like opening up which he did about yeah, prince great. yeah and other things like that when if you go to the the youtube where this is it asked jimmy carter's youtube site you know, people get all in a wad because they're these nutty Prince fans. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, out there, and they're uh, they're just so protective of anything involving Prince. And you know, James Brown, he still holds the record playing to a million people in Africa and all these places around the world that he played. You can find some of these concerts and even still pictures wow. where he played Africa, Europe, Middle East, uh, Far East. Uh, he Incredible. was literally the king of soul around the world. At one point, the two most famous people in the world were Muhammad Ali and James Brown. I believe that. Because yeah. they, the black people knew him, the white people knew him, everybody knew him, yeah. and all over the world. And not many people could say that. Unbelievable. That's what happens right here on Sweeping the Country, a special vault edition. Jimmy Carter and James Brown up close Hit-me. and personal. Jimmy. <laughs> Tune in next week for another edition of Sweeping the Country. Until then, I'm Derek Walker, and he is Jimmy.